So tonight with us, we are honored to have Zach Buchanan. He is an attorney with Midwest Innocence Project. And without further ado, I'm just going to turn it over to you, Zach. Thank you so much. All righty. Oh. <laughs> y'all are much too kind. Um, you can let me know if I need to adjust this as needed. Um, hey, y'all. I'm Zach. Um, as Jen said, I am an attorney here in town with the Midwest Innocence Project. Um, I am really excited to be chatting with y'all tonight. Um, I previewed to Jen in an email. I actually got into this line of work very specifically because of my Christian faith. Um, and so I get really excited when I see churches wanting to talk about, you know, this intersection of law and justice and what what faith looks like in the public square when it comes to legal issues and justice issues. Um, so I'll yeah, chat about my background a little bit because I think it's useful to know the speaker as they're speaking. And then we have um, sort of a general presentation we do about the issues that the Midwest Innocence Project sees, um, how people end up in prisons for things they did not do, and what it looks like to try and rectify that, try and get them out. Um, so I am a Mississippi boy. That's why I always start off with, hey, y'all, um, so that people hopefully get to know me. Um, and I was born and raised down there and then um, went up to Harvard for law school. Sounds much fancier than it is, but I met some fantastic people there. And the chaplain of our Christian fellowship there was um, an Anglican deacon. And so I felt I looked around at some of the Episcopal places when I was coming down here even. Um, and so I'm excited to be here with y'all. And then my first job out of law school um, was out in Phoenix representing guys who were on death row in their appeals. Um, and so that wasn't quite innocence work specifically, but I came and joined the Midwest Innocence Project back about nine months ago or so in August. Um, so I give that little bit of background to say I did that for several years, so that's what a lot of my experience was before coming here. Um, and then, yes, joined the Midwest Innocence Project in August where we represent people who are wrongfully convicted, serving in prison for crimes they did not commit. Um, and I was telling Jen as well, feel free to stop me, pause me with questions, anything as I go on. I have a tendency to rattle through things more quickly rather than less quickly. And there's a lot in this entire realm of law to cover. Um, so stop me at any time with questions, more than happy to take them. And with that, I'll get rolling. Um, so an introduction to the Midwest Innocence Project itself. Um, we are a nonprofit here in town um, based out of Kansas City, but cover the five state region of Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, and Arkansas. I've worked hard on rehearsing those five all in a row. Um, and so people um, incarcerated apply to us, asking us to take on their cases, you know, saying they are in prison for things they did not do. Um, and sort of as an overview of this wrongful conviction landscape, um, studies, it's hard to get an exact number on how often this phenomena happens, but studies suggest that between two and 7% of people in prisons and jails are there for crimes that they did not commit. This is, you know, looking at how often convictions are overturned for a variety of reasons, trying to get a number on that, between two and 7%. And across our five states, there are just over 100,000 people in prisons, I think, prison specifically. Um, and so putting it together suggests that between two and 7,000 people, very roughly, um, are sitting in prisons across these five states for crimes they, they did not commit. Um, and these numbers obviously always changing. Um, and across the country, I checked 
just this afternoon, before I came out to see y'all, because these numbers always change, there have been over 3,000 exonerations um, across the country since the 1990s. Um, current number sitting at around 3,300. Um, almost 600 of those were DNA confirmed. Um, we don't always get those numbers, but it's always nice to point that out. A lot of people take some comfort in that DNA validation. Um, and across those 3,300 or so exonerations, it comes out to over 28,000 years lost of these men and women's lives. Um, times that they are sitting in prison for something they fully did not do and only after the fact is this recognized. Um, those 3,000 plus exonerations don't include things like, you know, people being released for time served but not declared innocent, um, you know, pleading to lesser charges despite the fact that they didn't do anything. Um, so this is just a brief snapshot of the breadth of the issue. By the numbers across our five states, um, these are the numbers across the states for cases that are somewhere in our process. Um, the life of a case at the Midwest Innocence Project takes a little bit, um, and you can see the greatest number is right here out of Missouri at nearly 400. Um, there are a variety of reasons for this. You know, part of it might just be location-based. This is where we are, so where folks might hear about us more. Um, can also be because of the size of the system, of course. Um, but we get these cases from all over our five-state region. Um, and then our client demographics specifically, you can see that they are overwhelmingly male and majority black. Um, most of our applications come from men of color. Um, that is only scratching the surface of, obviously, the racial disparities across the criminal legal system. Um, but we always like to point it out to show that it is, we also see it in even our work, um, very innocence-focused work, that these disparities still exist. Um, of the 3,300 or so exonerees, um, almost half of them are black, and then about 1,000 are white, 400 Hispanic, and then from there. Um, so we see this throughout our line of work as well, um, on top of you know, the general attention, I think, has been um, paid to these disparities. And so now we'll talk through, I mentioned the life of a case with the Midwest Innocence Project is pretty long. Um, you know, we get hundreds of these applications. We are not an enormous organization. Uh, I think there are about, we're a staff of about 20, um, seven to 10 attorneys or so. Um, so it takes a lot to sift through this vast problem and sort of get some attention paid to these cases and get the courts to recognize what's gone wrong. Um, and so these are the four basic stages of our MIP cases. Um, questionnaires where they come in, and then a screening process based on those questionnaires and the cases. Once we start identifying cases where we can get some work done, um, then we turn towards investigating these cases, and finally litigation, actually taking the problem to court and trying to get these convictions overturned. So we'll walk through each of these, sort of the, the question of how these wrongful convictions happen, what goes wrong in those cases, um, and then some of the reforms that we're trying to see happen um, to fix this problem, and then we'll wrap up and chat through some questions. So this first step with the questionnaires, um, we have a brief questionnaire um, asking basic questions about people's cases, you know, the conviction, the offense, and then their stories. What went wrong? Tell us in your words. 
Um, sometimes people hear about us and write in themselves. Sometimes it's friends, loved ones um, who will ask on their behalf and we send applications to these people to get them to tell us more. Um, and then we have some, some criteria that we look for specifically sort of for us to be able to take cases on. And so um, some of our eligibility requirements here with we look for cases where the people have at least 10 years left on these sentences because these cases take, can take a long time to get through the system. Um, and so that's one way that we start looking at cases. Um, they don't have anything currently pending, so these are men and women with no representation that are just sitting there more or less all alone in their efforts. Um, and then cases where they're claiming actual innocence of the crime for which they're convicted. Um, we say that to distinguish from things like intoxication, claiming consent in some cases, um, self-defense, you know, grayer areas, I think, where they still have stories that I think need to be listened to and heard and oftentimes um, can, can justify some form of relief. But for the Midwest Innocence Project specifically, we limit that caseload to these innocence cases. Um, and so we gather basic information about their cases. Um, MIP right now has about 250 cases sitting at this stage where we have questionnaires going back and forth with people just trying to get information and starting this conversation. Once we get this questionnaire put together um, and we start to get, and we have you know, our initial set of information, we then start a screening process. This is the biggest bottleneck on our resources at MIP. There are something like 600 cases that we're sitting here trying to work through. Um, this gets done with volunteer attorneys, law students, our staff. Um, and we look at the cases as they're presented to us here at the beginning and think, in an ideal world, if we, could, we had all the resources we wanted to and started looking into this case, what could we do? What could we fix? What could we reinvestigate, look back into, um, to figure out where we think that we could intervene effectively? Um, and in so doing, a lot of what we're looking for in people's cases are sort of the big ticket, what we call hallmarks of wrongful convictions. These are patterns that people in the legal space have noticed come up often in cases of wrongful convictions. Um, and so we're going to talk through some of those patterns. These are the big questions of how this happens. Um, and so there are five or so that the National Registry of Exonerations tracks. Um, this little graph I pulled from their website, what's the date on that? The sixth, so earlier this week, um, to get our updated numbers. And so these are of the over 3,000 exonerations that have happened. Um, these, five these five hallmarks, the first one, mistaken eyewitness identifications. These are hard cases because you have people on the stand identifying the applicant who you know, may fully believe that they are looking at the person who committed this crime and they're just wrong. It, and so that gets into questions of how they got there, what the process was by which they made that identification. Um, the second here, and that's in about one in four cases, 25% uh, of cases we see that. In over half of these exonerations, uh, about 60%, the second one, perjury and false accusations. You might hear them called snitches. Uh, at the Midwest Innocence Project, we often say incentivized informants. So these could be you know, other people sitting in prisons who get told your charges you know, could be lessened or dropped if you'll testify in this other case. Or things like you know, we can 
take care of some family, some bills, if you're willing to testify in this other case. Um, and so you see this pattern of incentivizing the people who are on the stand giving testimony. Um, that's in about 60% of our case, 60% of these over 3,000 exonerations. 12%, um, so just over 10%, you have false confessions. Um, this one is really hard for, I think, everyone to wrap their minds around because the jury hears a confession from this person that they convict, um, and you look back through it later and find that the, the person didn't do it. Um, and it was the pressures of the investigation in the system that led them to this false confession. Um, fourth, uh, faulty forensics. Um, we call them flawed forensics at the Midwest Innocence Project. This is in nearly a quarter of cases. Um, there are all sorts of, I call them forensic disciplines rather than forensic sciences that are so much less reliable than we would like to believe and then they're often presented in court. These can be things like arson investigations, um, some uh, autopsies, things like that, um, even down to fingerprinting and ballistics, some outdated DNA things. Um, so often just antiquated forensic practices um, that, that when you look back later um, were so much less valid than initially presented. And the last one, official misconduct. This is in 57% of cases, so over half. This can be anything from police misconduct, prosecutor misconduct, the hiding of evidence, either you know, from anyone in that process. Um, happens a lot. Uh, oftentimes in these cases, the way that we find ourselves back in court is we find new evidence that was there all along, but the person never knew about. Um, and so you start looking at systemic factors, I think, that, um, that lead to official misconduct and the system not being able to work the way that I think we would hope. Um, and so we'll break down each of these a little bit um, because this is where I think the interesting pieces of this work are, are how, does, how do each of these problems happen? Eyewitness misidentifications was kind of my bread and butter. Coming in, in college, I spent an obscene amount of time on a research project looking at how eyewitness misidentifications happen. And there are a bunch of structural questions on how how witnesses make their identifications that we can try and reform to fix this problem. Um, so some of the bad processes that can lead to unreliable identifications. Um, this first one, cross-racial cross -racial and cross-age identifications. There have been some studies showing that when you're looking at faces of people of a different racial group than you, that you're less accurate making identifications, less able to identify faces. And then they furthered it and found that it even goes to things like age group. When you're looking at faces of someone uh, you know, not in your age cohort, you're similarly less accurate, less reliable making these identifications. Um, the suggestion that I've seen on this is you know, part of it just being who you spend your time around, who it is that we're raised around um, that can feed into things like this. And so, you know, this is something that can't always be controlled in the process, but when, um, when juries and people don't know about this effect, then it can lead us to trust these identifications potentially more than, um, than, than their credence. Uh, the second one, our weapon focus effect. There have been fascinating studies, some of them like eye-tracking studies, showing that when witnesses are faced with any sort of you know, weapon threatening them, you know, a person has a gun on them, a knife, anything of the sort, um, our eyes, we tend to focus on the weapon because that's where the danger is. And 
it's kind of counterintuitive because a lot of people think, no, no, if I was you know, in that situation, I would remember who this person was. Um, but our focus naturally goes towards the weapon itself. Um, so there's some fascinating studies there, and you know, we see this all the time in cases. Um, these last two show-ups and conditions of viewing, even from sort of seeing a lot of crime dramas, you might be aware that there are a lot of different ways an, identif an identification can happen. You know, you have photos, you have the classic lineup situation. Show-ups are one where sometimes when the crime is reported quickly, um, you know, officers run to the scene and then they find someone who may or may not resemble the description just in the area and you bring them to the scene and show your victims or your witnesses and say, oh, is this the guy? Is this the person? Um, you see that all the time in cases which, I mean, you can see the logic behind. You know, you want quick identification, quick resolution. Um, but the suggestiveness of a procedure like that, you know, having just witnessed or experienced a crime and having someone directly in front of you, another common thing we see in our cases. Um, and then all sorts of things about the condition of viewing, uh, the condition of the identification. How long after the crime was it? How dark was it? Um, where were they when this was happening? Um, and so these are some of the, the common hallmarks we see in these mistaken ID cases. And so some of the good uh, procedures that MIP looks at and is trying to advocate for um, won't run through all of these sir, a bit much, but things like the instructions, what you tell people when they're making an identification, making sure they know that the person may or may not be there. A big one is making sure people know that an investigation will continue regardless of whether or not they make an identification. Um, trying to lessen the pressure around these and you know, uh, to lessen the pressure that people feel like they have to choose someone, anyone, because that's often how people then get implicated in these wrongful convictions cases. Um, and confident statements is another interesting one. Uh, some great research about when they make the identification, you want at the same time to ask them, how sure are you? Because as an investigation continues and a witness you know, continues to tell their story, to maybe make the identification, um, a lot of times they can grow more confident the more times they get validated that they've got the right person. This happened in one of our client's cases. Ricky Kidd um, was right out of a, a case right out of Kansas City. Um, and among the myriad problems that happened in Ricky's case, um, he was, I want to say he served 23 years um, for a crime that he did not commit. Um, and one of, the, one of the witnesses who identified Ricky at trial, um, at trial said 200% sure this guy is the guy um, on the stand, you know, points at Ricky and that, that's compelling to a jury and I think even to us sitting here now, you know, you have someone saying, I'm sure beyond a shadow of a doubt. Turns out when the person first made the identification, they weren't really sure it was Ricky. They didn't totally know. They gave something like 80% sure maybe. It took them a while. They looked at it. They, they didn't know what they were doing. Um, but over the course of this investigation, they get so much more sure. And so when, when all that the jury hears, all that goes into the conviction is 200% certain, I know what I'm talking about, um, you can see how the, the system lets these, lets problems snowball that then lead to a wrongful conviction. I do have a question. Yes, please. You, at the start there, you showed your bar chart mm -hmm. where you talked about misidentification and then you also talked about official misconduct. Yes. And if you added all those up, it was certainly more than 100%. Oh, yes. So in a situation like this, if you think the procedure is bad, mm -hmm. 
is that an official misconduct system or is that a misidentification or both or, or and you try to sort that out yes it sometimes is both sometimes it's just one or the other um, so two stories come to mind there's a case of Ronald Cotton um, who was a, a mistaken identification case um, that where the the woman who identified him on the stand was 100% certain, more or less from day one. Um, she intentionally tried to study the face of the man who was attacking her at the time. Um, and eventually DNA showed that it was not Ronald Cotton. They now go around speaking on this issue, have reconciled. I think it's a really beautiful faith in law moment, sort of, of asking how these questions go wrong and what we do in hindsight. And that was one where investigators, you know, there were little things that went wrong. You know, they affirmed her choices. They said, okay, yeah, we think this guy might have been involved in some other stuff. But it wasn't necessarily an official misconduct case where they had him targeted and they were pushing him from the beginning. So sometimes it's just honest mistake in these cases. And those, I think, are scary to talk about and to think about with, you know, general public. Other times, there's definitely crossover. Um, in the case of Lamont McIntyre out of Kansas City, Kansas, um, part of the fact pattern of that case was that there was a police officer who had been victimizing community members for quite a while, um, one of whom was Lamont's mother. Um, and so when they were investigating a double homicide that had happened over there, um, Lamont's mother had rebuffed this officer, upset him. And so they made uh, a photo array with where two of the five were Lamont and one of Lamont's family members. Um, and so it was retaliatory for, um, for this officer's misconduct. And so that's one case where you see both at play together. You know, you have an official um, engaging in some level of misconduct to steer their um, eyewitness identification in the directions they want it to go. Um, so yeah, this is some of these cases, you see them deeply intertwined. Other times you have, you know, just uh, truly best intentions, mistaken identification because of some of these procedural mistakes. Yeah. Um, and so on then to the incentivized informants, snitches sometimes in vernacular. Um, these are all over the place. I said this was you know, the most commonly seen among those 3,000, about 60%. You have some level of incentivized informants. And so oftentimes when we get these cases and start looking at them, we're always interested in these key witnesses, especially when they're witnesses who are facing their own charges, anything like that. Um, and so we start asking questions about these witnesses. How did they get involved? How, how did officers find this person who's testifying against our client? Um, you know, do, do they have other charges pending? Are there deals that they got on other charges that we do or don't know about? A lot of times it can take some digging to find these sorts of things. Um, you see co-defendants all the time who you know, will flip on one another um, and any number of sort of other motivations that these witnesses could have had that our clients had a right to know about and to investigate but oftentimes don't hear about until so much later. Um, the case that comes to mind on this one is a guy named Lamar Johnson out of St. Louis, one of um, MIP's clients. And it came out only, I mean, decades after Lamar's conviction for um, a homicide he did not commit, that one of the state's key witnesses um, had been getting, uh, had gotten some level of payments to the witness's family to help out with bills, things like that. Um, 
And that was something that Lamar and his counsel didn't know at the time of trial. Um, but that this witness, as they had gotten involved with Lamar's case, you know, had, um, had expressed hesitation, you know, didn't, didn't know about testifying, wasn't totally sure. Um, and in that case, I, I forget if charges were involved. Um, but it just goes to show that, I mean, it, it's not always just, you know, jail snitches putting someone in the same cell. Um, there are all these different levels of what it looks like to incentivize the witnesses on the stand. And sometimes that can be really hard to track down. Um, but at the end of the day, starts, starts to tease apart the question of how did this person end up in prison for something they didn't commit? Um, when you see all these different factors, you know, compiling and snowballing together, um, it can be, you know, death by a thousand cuts oftentimes. Um, so another big one we start looking into, who are the people testifying against him? Were there some incentives there that the record didn't show at the time? On our false confessions, this one probably keeps me up at night the most maybe, um, because I think lay people and juries alike, and I mean, even myself, if I'm honest, it, it can be hard to wrap your mind around how does a person end up confessing to something they did not do. Um, and so this is where you start looking at the interrogation. How, how did this confession come about? Um, you know, where is, are there parts of this that um, made the applicant, the client, vulnerable population, anything, you know, um, intelligence related, age related, um, how long were they this in, how long were they in this interrogation? Um, how how did this confession start? Because it's very rare that someone gets on the stand and confesses. It's always, you know, they present a statement or a recording or something like that saying, no, no, that this person confessed, we promise. They don't often do it at the time of trial. That's pleading guilty. Um, and and then things, the last one there, fed information, you know, is the person organically just popping everything off? Or, you know, are they getting details of the crime as they're being interrogated? So that by the end, you know, they, they say these details, but it's only things that they've learned as they've heard about the case themselves. Um, and on, I'll, I'll save that. Um, the case that I think is the headline for this one is, um, the Exonerated Five, um, often known as the Central Park Five, um, well-publicized case out of New York. Um, and, you know, there were, that, that, that case has had its, uh, has had plenty of attention on it. Um, but when it comes to just this question of false confessions, um, a lot of recordings of those interrogations, um, you know, it was dramatized for a Netflix series, but even the interrogations themselves from the actual investigation are, um, accessible on the internet in this case, and you can see some of these, you know, the, uh, these factors of you know like them hearing names from the officers interrogating them, being corrected on things they get wrong, um, and and th that was a case where um, right they had these overlaid confessions that they thought were concrete evidence, um, but then as they dug into how did these confessions come about, um, you started seeing that. You know, th these weren't um, organic moments of people talking about things they had done, but rather people broken down and just saying what they knew um, their interrogators wanted to hear. They said what they knew they were supposed to say. Um, so these are hard to break down, but when they are broken down, um, powerful and uh, d disconcerting. Um, 
And then our last couple, faulty forensics, these are also hard to wrap my mind around because when they're presented at trial, it's science. You know, they put a scientist on the stand, they testify about something, and to find out later that that was less reliable um, is hard to hear. And so pretty much the only thing that we look at with, that, that we will sometimes use, is DNA. Um, there was a report by the National Academy of uh, Sciences back in, I think, 2009, and they sort of did an overlay of all these different scientific and forensic disciplines. And, one of, and their conclusion, um, an excerpt from that report was that, with the exception of nuclear DNA analysis, with the exception of some DNA testing, no forensic method had been rigorous, rigorously shown to have the capacity to consistently, with a high degree of certainty, demonstrate a connection between evidence and a specific individual. So more or less, there were all these forensic disciplines that hadn't been tested enough to be able to reliably make these identifications in courts. So here's just a smattering of them. Your gun mark and ballistics sorts of things, um, bite marks are a huge one in the wrongful conviction space, shoe prints, um, blood spatter analysis, some arson and fire science, um, hair analysis, fingerprinting, um, shaky, shaken baby syndrome um, diagnoses, and all these other sorts of forensic disciplines that show up in courts um, that the disciplines themselves were not questioned well enough for so long. Um, so let me see, the, the, the case that comes to mind here, um, Michael Polite, another MIP client out of St. Louis, um, his was an arson case, and part of the Part of his conviction was an arson expert at trial testifying that they had done analysis on Mike's shoes and it showed the presence of accelerant. Um, and so obviously, you know, he had used this accelerant, started this fire. Um, it was ultimately a homicide conviction um, because his mother had died in the fire. Um, and that was a big part of the evidence that put Mike away, you know, presence of accelerant on his shoes. Decades later, um, testing is advanced, we, re we revisit that report um, and find out that the accelerant that this, um, that this expert testified on the stand they found on his shoes uh, was really just a part of the manufacturing process. It was a chemical that was used in the manufacturing of shoes at the time, but was misidentified at trial as this accelerant. Um, and so what we have to do in these cases is go back to these experts and always question, how did this expert conclusion come about? How has the field uh, changed since that time? Um, how much can they actually say, how much should that expert actually have been able to say about the certainty of their conclusions? Um, because as science has developed, we've learned that we were, there, there was some outdated stuff happening, um, but those convictions stand, and so now trying to go back and revisit those, um, again, we see these faulty forensics in something like a quarter of our cases. Um, and so here are some of the areas that MIP has targeted in the past, that arson, um, the shaken baby diagnoses, bite marks and hair analysis. Um, these are only some of the areas where MIP has done some cases before. Like I said, I came on in August, so I haven't done all of these cases myself. Um, but where sort of cases across the spectrum have shown over recent years um, how these forensic disciplines can't hold up for all that they promised at the time, often. Uh, so are these still allowed? It depends. Um, there, it's largely on a case-by-case -case basis. Oftentimes, there will, um, 
ideally be a hearing at the you know before the time of trial over the discipline and you know how much the expert can and should be able to allow to test to testify to on the stand um, so some examples on things like um, like the ballistics and uh, you know uh, casing analysis um, being able to you know testify that okay it probably came from this model of gun you know might be an allowable testimony but then to go further and say it came from this specific gun we found at this person's house oftentimes pushes the bounds and so um, depending on the the limits of what the testimony should be um, ideally you know there are these are those questions are being explored at the time of trial with rigorous questions of, you know, how far has the science come? What can reliably be said about specific identifications? And when do we have to pull back? Um, so always depends on the field, but incredibly often, yes. Um, a lot of these are still around because, um, because there hasn't been um, enough widespread turning from these unreliable practices for them to be totally excluded. The law is pretty slow to follow the science a lot of times, unfortunately. Um, and then our final one, um, official misconduct. Uh, the big problem here is, like I said, finding new material that the person should have known about at the time of trial, but either the police or the prosecutor um, you know, didn't turn over. Um, sometimes because they didn't think a thing about it, other times because it was a lead they didn't think was relevant and you find out later um, that's exactly where they should have been going and sometimes with, with more nefarious intent. And so um, the Lamar Johnson case I mentioned where one of the key witnesses had been getting some sort of payments and incentivized, that was a case where we had a record of, forget for how many years, five or 10 years, um, Lamar's counsel had been specifically asking are there any records of benefits that you had been giving to this witness? And, we had, and they had consistently been told, no, no, there's nothing in our file. No, there's nothing in our record. No, we don't have anything. And then it was only when a new prosecutor actually came in over in St. Louis that all of a sudden another request was filed and we got some records that had been in their file the whole time and we hadn't known about. Um, so this is, I mean, it can be a sort of maddening search to constantly be looking and thinking, what if there's something else there? And this is something I've asked my supervising attorneys before even, like, you know, is, is there any point at which you feel like there's nothing more to you to, for you to find? The answer is kind of no, apparently. Um, it's just the paranoia of working in this line of work that, you know, there always could be a silver bullet sitting there, and you just sort of keep asking and keep looking through whatever, whatever mechanisms you can. Um, let me check my time real quick. Okay. Um, so these are the big hallmarks and sort of how, how these wrongful convictions happen. And then I'll run through quickly sort of what we do from there and some of the reforms that MIP is uh, trying to advocate for to address some of these issues. Um, so after we do our screening um, and we identify cases where we see things that we could address, you know, we see some of these hallmarks, um, we have our mind wrapped around the story of the crime. Um, then we will take cases on to start investigating. Call this our boots on the ground phase, where we start reevaluating the scientific evidence. We you know, ask for the records of these witnesses. We start talking with some of the witnesses again. Sometimes that's how you find out these sorts of things like incentives is only by um, re-interviewing people. Um, 
as far as numbers at MIP, we have uh, about 12 investigations more or less in progress where we have uh, two absolutely fantastic investigators on staff that are going back out and talking to witnesses, getting records. Um, and then we've got about 80 cases that we've identified as there's some investigation we could do and it's, it's just a resource question right now where we have cases that we're ready to jump in, ready to start investigating. Um, we just sort of need the time. Um, and so yeah, I mentioned we get boots on the ground. When you go and investigate these people, sometimes you're getting signed statements from them to reintroduce to courts and say, hey, here, here's this new information that, that we have now that we didn't have before. Um, and then on those scientific questions, um, we're often consulting new experts. Uh, you know, part of the Mike Polite case with that arson investigation was bringing in current arson experts and having them testify to what the state of the science actually was, uh, what those reports should have looked like. Um, and so we'll have to get new experts on board to help us, you know, and as much as I would love to be an expert in all these things, I'm a lawyer, I don't know what I'm talking about at the end of the day. Um, so consulting new experts on these issues um, to come in and help us understand, you know, how, how reliable was what happened at trial? What, how are things different now? Um, and then as we investigate, we then can switch over to taking these things to court. Litigation, showing up to a court and saying, here's what went wrong, and here's how we think that it should be overturned and we should fix it. Um, this, the legal procedures to get these issues addressed is kind of a nightmare. Um, and I guess is more or less the full-time job. Um, and so there are a million procedural hurdles to getting courts to listen to these sorts of problems. Um, a, a common refrain in this line of work is that, you know, we have courts that oftentimes care about finality over fairness. You know, there's the idea of innocent until proven guilty, but once you have that guilty conviction, courts are really hesitant to look at anything new. Um, they stick to that really hard. And so, so there's a lot of strategizing and posturing and fighting that has to go into showing a court why they should care. Um, usually, oh, um, it's, it's great when we have that newly discovered evidence that we can show. If we can find anything new, that's often our way into court. Um, that's one of the questions we'll ask when we're screening and investigating cases. Can we find something new to show a court? Um, other times making claims like your ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, there's an epidemic of poor representation that can happen at these initial phases. Um, and so sometimes we just have to sort of look through why, why wasn't this problem caught on the front end? Um, and you can bring claims showing how they didn't get the help that they were entitled to. Um, and then suppressed evidence similar to newly discovered evidence, um, you know, something that we didn't have until now and couldn't have had because it was being kept from us. The something else is kind of a sad addendum. Um, courts won't, you can't show up to court and just say, I'm innocent. That's, that's not a claim in and of itself to get you, to get your conviction overturned. Um, oftentimes you have to show some sort of constitutional right violation. And so something like evidence being suppressed, um, you know, juror misconduct, uh, a, a violation of rights, just being innocent, um, the Supreme Court has held is not enough. Um, Missouri has a limited innocence claim where they've recognized that for people on death row, 
if you can make a persuasive showing of actual innocence, that could be a claim for relief. But they've limited it only to people on death row. And so some of our clients who don't have death sentences, we can't show up to court and just say, hey, we can show now that this person was innocent. Um, if, if we can't get in with something, if we can't show a constitutional violation, something like they had bad counsel that they were entitled to, or there's this new evidence that they're entitled to have heard, um, courts don't want to just revisit convictions. Um, and so that is oftentimes the, the maddening undercurrent, I think, of a lot of our cases when we th start thinking of how do, how do we get resolution here, um, is that it's oftentimes not enough to just say this person is innocent. Um, you have to have problems with the case beyond that, because the court is just going to say, hey, you said you were innocent back at the time of trial. The jury said otherwise. You've got to show us that something went wrong with that procedure um, to get relief. Um, and so, so that's why sort of this work is hard and slow, oftentimes, is trying to figure out how to get courts to listen to a claim like this. Um, and on numbers, MIP has about 20 cases in active litigation um, at various stages along that process. Um, we oftentimes partner with law firms that will help us out in litigating these, or law school clinics um, who can also help us with filings and whatnot. Um, but about, about 20 cases that we're trying to do here. Um, I do have a note to pause here that because of how stacked the system is against reversing convictions, um, a really important part of this step for me, um, and in thinking through my prior job too of representing guys who are on death row who were a mix of innocent and quite guilty, um, is the importance of telling the client's story during this process too. And in recognizing with them that odds sometimes may be slim, but but we're going to tell your story the way that it should have been told, and we're going to tell the truth about what happened here. Um, and on the faith angle, the, the encouragement I often take to this is um, you know, the recognition that we, we have the promise that what has been said in darkness will come to light. Um, regardless of whether, whether systems here and these courts will recognize it themselves. Um, and so a lot of times that's that's the dogged encouragement I will try and take to clients, is that you know, we, are, we are going to say what happened. We, we are going to tell the truth. We are going to get your story out there. And, and bringing with it the recognition that their story and their truth is, is important and valid you know, to, to our teams, but on my, in my very personal walk, you know, to the, the God who saves. You know, that they are, they are more than what they are, they've been tossed aside by the system. Um, and, that, and that at the end of the day, there is, there is so much more value to them than this conviction that has been attached to their name. Um, even when that's going to be the first thing that a court system sees, the first thing that I think so much of society sees, um, trying to headline that over and over again, so that when the courts sometimes are unresponsive, to, to these claims, these stories, um, just to let them know that, that that's not the end all be all, um, that there is so much value just to um, telling their stories. And so, quickly, the couple of reforms um, that MIP is trying to work on um, 
to fix some of these problems on the front end. You know, if we can change the laws, you know, I mentioned all those holes about how these bad practices happen. If we can change those some, we can try and head these off on the front end. One, on the eyewitness identification policies, um, we're trying to get laws and practices passed on that good side. So more or less putting into practice that, okay, you're going to take a confidence statement every time that something is taken. Um, you're going to record how these identifications happen so we can see it. Um, I mentioned the instructions, you know, it's good to tell the investigation will continue, the person might not be there. If we can put into law and practice and policy that that's gonna happen every time, we can try and head some of these problems off. Um, the state of Missouri specifically has not been the quickest to implement these sorts of changes, but the Kansas City Police Department implemented some of these back in um, August of 21. And so very recently, within the past year, um, there was some work and the Kansas City Police Department passed some internal policies saying that they would do things like trying to record these, give some good instructions. Um, so we've seen some movement. Across the five states, we have a variety of successes. I'll just focus on Missouri for the sake of time through these. Um, another on the false confessions front, we want all of these interrogations recorded in full because that's the only way that you can see how this confession happened, what were the circumstances behind it. Um, so recording the entire interrogation and then letting the jury know that if, if they don't think the confession was completely organic, if they think it was uh, coerced and pressured, that they can disregard it. Um, in Missouri, this law was passed um, within the last couple of years. I forgot to grab a date, but it's been a recent good thing. Um, the, the, the caveat on it is the law was passed that all interrogations um, for committing for serious crimes were recorded when feasible, and so there's a, a little uh, slough language in there. Um, but there's a provision that the government can withhold funds from police departments if it seems like they're not trying to comply with that in good faith. Um, so there's been some promising reform there. Um, and across some other states too, Kansas passed in 2017. We don't have anything in Arkansas yet, but like a Supreme Court guidance. Um, but this is like a push, you know, that MIP and other innocence organizations are making across our 50 states because it's not common practice or law yet for all these to be recorded. So we're working on it. And then the last one I've got here, and quite a different issue, is compensating people once they are exonerated. Um, this is not, not passed in all 50 states yet. Um, there are some states where there's no law saying that we're gonna compensate you for however many years were stolen from you. Um, Kansas passed a law in, I think, 21, very recently. Um, that is one of the better ones. MIP, what the staff there were doing some work on it. Um, that compensation law is 65,000 a year plus some services, things like housing education services. Um, just in recognition that, I mean, these are decades often of people's lives that were stolen from them. Um, Missouri's is a lot more limited. Theirs is if you're exonerated only through DNA testing, mentioned up top, you know, some 500 of those 3,000 plus are through DNA testing. Um, only if you're exonerated through DNA testing, eligible for $50 a day of your wrongful conviction if you file it within the first year of your release. And so we have a compensation statute on hand, but it's really limited. I, off the top of my head, don't know of cases where we've actually been able to make use of that. And I mean, you think $50 a day, what, 350 days in a year, you've significantly less than the 65,000 that is. Um, Thank you. Uh, 
not the most encouraging. Um, and so this is one area where we would love to see reform in Missouri. Don't know how optimistic we are about it. Um, and of note, there are 12 states that just don't have any compensation law in the books. If you're exonerated, proven innocent, they let you out and say, sorry about it, good luck. Um, so some recognition of the wrong that was done. And so finally, I mean, what do we do? I think we only have so much power against the breadth of the system and the problems that are present. Um, the couple of things that we try and highlight, the big one is talk about it, be aware of it. I say often that I am a joy at my family's Thanksgiving table. Um, they may or may not agree with that. Um, but just you know, asking these questions when there are headline stories about you know, crimes, wrongful convictions, anything of the sort, um, being aware of it and asking questions. Um, I have heard pointed out often and really like the, the idea that so much of Jesus' ministry comes through asking questions and sharing stories. Um, and I try and translate that to my work a good bit, that you know, I think so much, uh, so much progress is made through asking hard questions of you know, how these things happen, how our system works. Um, supporting policy report reform efforts, those reform efforts I mentioned, when you see them, look at them, support them, drum up support, tell your friends and family, your spheres of influence. Um, events like this are great. Again, just talking about it, getting to know it. Um, I'll flag MIP has an annual gala uh, called the Faces of Innocence. That'll be coming up in June. Um, and I mean, folks can attend individually, sponsor tables, a whole host of things. Um, and then uh, obviously, I mentioned the resource dilemma, um, funding both you know, innocence organizations like MIP or others and exonerees when they get out. Um, like I said, in, in Missouri, it's not much. And so um, when people do get released, a lot of time they rely on community support. Um, I think it's a really cool way for you know, the church to engage in local giving, caring for um, the, you know, those in chains, the fatherless. Um, and so there, and then MIP has occasional volunteer opportunities. Um, the, I think, easiest way to hear about all of these is, I mean, MIP is very active on, um, across social media. There's a Facebook page, there's a Twitter. Um, we have a website where a lot of this comes through. So, you know, when there's a policy effort going through, they'll be talking about it and ways you can support uh, when events are coming up, when folks are getting released and needing support. Um, all those things come through. And so I've got all that information on the next slide here. Let me make sure I didn't, yeah. Um, and so here's some basic information. Um, my personal email and then over left is MIP's main line. Over on the right is my direct. Can call or text me truly anytime. Um, down at the bottom are MIP's information, our website. Um, that second one is us on Twitter and then at the bottom on Facebook as well. Um, if you want to continue hearing about the work, we're everywhere. Um, and then truly, if you have questions, want to talk more about these issues, this work, like I said, I, I ended up here very specifically because of my faith. Um, and so I love these conversations. And this is why I ramble is because I get really excited um, to be in spaces like this. And so if you want to chat more about anything, everything, I am beyond game. Just reach out, and I'd be happy to keep talking. Um, but with that, I'll wrap up and open it up to, I mean, any and all questions, feel free as, as legal-related, as faith-related, as needed, or as desired. <laughs> and thank you all. You may have said this at the beginning, and I didn't catch it. How are you funded? 
Yes, uh, so we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and so oh, um, yeah, so a good bit of um, donor funding and uh, donation funding, and then some too from federal grants, um, so we can apply for funding through the federal government for some of our like specific projects. A little bit of everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> there, um, right. Taylor this week was executed. Mm -hmm. So he's a client of a Midwest Innocent Project. Did mm -hmm. you have anything to do on his case? Uh, very briefly, and not a ton. That so he had different counsel and MIP um, sort of looped in at the end to help out with some of the end stage litigation that was going through. Um, so, and, and I know some of the senior attorneys were more involved in his case. Um, and yeah, it's been a, a hard week um, on that front. And I mean, we had a staff meeting earlier this week where we started with you know a pause and a recognition of Taylor's execution. Um, and those are, I say often in this line of work, hopes high and expectations low. Um, and so that was one of those cases where you know there at the end it was a matter of we we were going to to recognize his value in humanity, tell his story left, right, forwards, and backwards, um, and it uh, didn't turn out. Um, so yeah, there was, there was some involvement there. Um, we weren't his primary counsel, um, but it was a, uh, a dark week, I think, for justice. And his, um, know, last words, uh, death, death is not your enemy, it's, it's your destiny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was... I've heard only good things um, from those that were in contact with him about his um, his own sort of dogged optimism. It's really inspiring. Could you speak up just a little? Oh, of course. Apologies. <laughs> so how, obviously this takes its toll, both on, on you all as staff and those who are in the pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. How involved are, or if at all, are the prison chaplains in, in all of this? I think my experience is that it largely depends on sort of the clients and their you know, um, desired engagement with prison chaplains and folks there. Um, you know, I've had some who were very quick when I came on cases to say that that was their source of hope and uh, perseverance while they were incarcerated. Um, and others who you know, weren't too interested. Um, and so I think especially with you know, clients maintaining sort of their day-to-day, -day, um, there's incredible value from all of their involvement. And then um, there's been some movement that has been really interesting to track on um, specifically the capital and death row front of asking questions about um, you know, chaplains and religious advisors' presence and participation at the time of executions. Um, there's, you know, since the political climate largely is receptive to religious, uh, religious exercise arguments, um, we've been able to, I think, ask some good questions about, you know, people's right to, um, to, to practice out their faith, um, you know, in especially last and hard moments. Um, and so I don't, 
I, I don't personally coordinate a ton with the prison chaplains, um, but it's, it's always great to hear from clients um, the, the work they get to do with them. Yeah. Do, um, on a national basis, um, are there any protections for defense attorneys or prosecutors who are willing to talk to you truthfully? Um, can you, do you ever talk with um, prosecutors and, you know, they're worried about uh, facing charges, mm. defense attorneys who are incompetent, uh, attorneys can have their careers destroyed. Yeah. Is there anything that the system does to encourage people to work with you? There's, I think there's a good bit of protection on the sort of prosecutor and judge's side. Um, because there's a recognition that we don't want to chill them from doing their jobs. Um, but as far as, I mean, systemic incentives for them to affirmatively work to, to do this, to, you know, revisit wrongs, um, I don't know that there are many systemic incentives for it. Um, and so you see a lot of sort of trying to find, I mean, I've had a variety of experiences. Most of mine has been interviewing prior counsel, uh, prior defense counsel. Um, and I mean, I've seen a, a breadth of, you know, some who were ready to fall down on every sword and recognize everything that went wrong and all of their limitations and others who had concerns, you know, about having their dirty laundry aired. Um, and then similarly, I think you see a span on the prosecution side too. Um, you know, some who are there's been some movement to establish things called conviction integrity units in prosecutors' offices who will take a look back at some of these cases. Um, and there's been sort of a new crop of some prosecutors come up who uh, will look at these cases more and give them more attention and work with innocence organizations more openly. Um, they are not all, uh, it's, it's not all of them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know that we're seeing specific incentives to continue growing that other than, I mean, um, you know, those are elected positions. And so these are in communities who recognize these issues and vote people in who will talk about, you know, the problems in the system, needing to revisit things. Um, so I guess y'all are the incentives. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's nothing else, thank you so much, uh, Zach, for being with us and enlightening us tonight on the work of Midwest Innocence. No, no thank y'all. Thank you so much. Like I said, it br brings me very, very serious joy just to know that these spaces are happening. So thank y'all.